Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and thanks for tuning in. A haunting image of a Syrian boy covered in dust and blood in the back of an ambulance has focused the world's attention on the conflict in that country. The Syrian government and its Russian allies continue to bomb regions of the country held by rebel groups fighting to oust President Bashar al-Assad. But this is not a clear-cut fight between a government and its detractors. There are several groups fighting with and against each other, and twisted up in the war are ISIS and other extremely dangerous terrorist organizations. Making it all the more complicated are the millions of innocent civilians who have been sent fleeing the region in an attempt to find peace and quiet and prosperity elsewhere. Here to help us unpack this morning the complexities of that war and the other things going on in the Middle East right now are two uh, experts, two of my favorite guests on this show. Saeed Khan is a lecturer in Near East and Asian Studies at Wayne State University and a fellow at the Institute for Social Policy and Understanding. Aaron Reddish is a history professor at Wayne State University with a specialization in Soviet and Russian history and an author. Aaron and Saeed, welcome to Detroit Today. Nice to be here. Thank yeah. you for having me. Yeah. Uh, let's start with this this attention that has uh, sort of refocused on, on Syria. There's something that's frustrating about that, I think. Uh, the the idea that this boy, who uh, obviously is a very sympathetic character, uh, gets our attention. But, of course, the war there rages on every day. There are millions and millions of victims uh, of it. And it's not getting it's not getting better. I mean, this is not working itself to a close where uh, the civilians in that country are going to be able to live in peace. It is it is tying itself in tighter, more violent knots. Well, I think uh, part of the problem, Stephen, is uh, the situation of and the image of this uh, of this young boy uh, reminds us of what happened last year with uh, the little Syrian boy, uh, Aylin Kurdi, who uh, was drowned and who ended up uh, on the beach yeah. in uh, in Turkey. And, and tragically, for us, uh, these are just becoming memes. Uh, they help to elevate and escalate uh, the conflict that's happening in Syria, but because we tend to be distracted in, in the conventional news cycle with, uh, with the elections and, uh, well, with the now recently finished Olympics, uh, it's not something that really has uh, captured the American attention. And part of it is because it is so complicated, it seems as though the attention span for it is also waning. Yeah. Uh, Aaron Reddish, talk about the, 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 the Russian role in Syria. Uh, we had you here on the program a while back when the Russians started uh, their campaign in, in Syria. They had some pretty clear goals. Where are they in that campaign now? And is it is it working is it working the way they thought it was going to work? Is it working to the benefit of uh, folks in Syria? Um, it is working to the to Putin's delight. I mean, really, exactly as the Kremlin wanted it, and more. Uh, Russia wanted an increased presence in the Middle East. It wanted to stabilize Bashar al-Assad. It got that. It has also recently um, kind of regenerated or kind of furthered ties with Iran. Uh -huh. um, just this week is the Iran allowed for the first time since World War II uh, foreign planes to launch from Iran. Um, they said that it would stop yesterday, although there's no sign that, that Russian planes are actually stopping. Uh, they, there was this um, uh, tension between Russia and Turkey that lasted 10 months, but now in the last month, since Russia 
supported uh, the Turkish government uh, during the coup. There have been this uh, this um, kind of uh, coming together between Russia with Russia and Turkey. So Russia is now a strong presence in the Middle East. Uh, Al Assad is is strong, uh, and um, the Western forces in Syria look kind of confused and are not doing what they want. So yeah. Russia is doing everything it wants and. Uh, it is a very complex situation. Somehow Russia seems to be doing all the chess pieces exactly as they want. And so what's the answer to that? I mean, there are people in this country, of course, who say, well, we ought to take a more active role, that the United States ought to get involved and try to tip the balance away from Russia and I Iran. Uh, of course, in the region, there are also several proxy wars uh, going on between other states that, that sort of capture all of these tensions. What is is the, what is the role that the U.S. could play uh, that would be constructive in uh, sort of restoring uh, calm and some peace to that country, but also sort of advancing our own, our own international interests? Well, I think that question, Stephen, is really contingent on exactly what does the U.S. want. Uh, clearly, it could take a more direct role, uh, something that's much more complicated now with uh, the Russian intervention there, uh, because there is parity when it comes to the powers. Uh, but the United States has, for the last five years, been uh, operating indirectly in the region right. with support for, as you said, various proxies, as well as uh, so-called and now erstwhile uh, allies uh, in the region as well. And part of that, again, is informed by the fact that uh, American policy in the Middle East for some time has really been sullied by the legacy of what happened with uh, the Iraq War, the, the second sure. Iraq War. Uh, but the United States is uh, supplying uh, weapons, in fact, uh, to one uh, Kurdish group right now, which is of particular interest, the uh, People's Protection Unit known as the uh, YPG. But prop part of the problem has been the U.S. has been operating through its uh, various, uh, again, so-called allies in the region, none of whom have the same objectives and prioritization that the United States has case in point, the Saudis, the United Arab Emirates, Qatar, uh, who are really looking at this as a bulwark against Iran yeah. and part of that proxy war that you mentioned. And now we find the real pivot, uh, which is Turkey. Uh, Turkey has always seen for itself uh, an antipathy for al-Assad, which may change. But for them, the biggest issue has always been to repel the Kurds and particularly their aspirations from creating an independent state in the eastern part of the country, despite the fact that the Kurds had been some of the most formidable uh, fighters uh, and combatants against ISIS. So it is an incredibly complicated thing. I think Aaron mentioned a chessboard. I think here we have it in three dimensions. <laughs> that, the, the really complicated 3D, 3D chess that I could never figure out. As a kid. <laughs> uh, uh, talk some about uh, the, the tensions that involve Iran in the region and the, the, the proxy that's going on now with the Saudis bombing Yemen. That is also about Iran, correct? Oh, definitely. And I mean, this is uh, something that has, of course, been uh, underway for quite a while, uh, partly couched uh, within the whole uh, nuclear uh, specter. Given the fact that last year there was the Iran nuclear de uh, deal inked and what one would ostensibly think would be a reduction in tensions between the two countries, the exact opposite has happened. We have now the Saudis who are taking a much more muscular and petulant posture toward Iran. Uh, they are very concerned that Iran is now going to be re-welcomed into the international community with the reduction or the lifting of sanctions. It will improve and enhance its own economic uh, profile and influence in the region. 
And we find that all of these uh, conflicts that have been occurring around, uh, case in point Yemen, are these uh, uh, proxy wars. And we find that there is symmetry, just as we find in the case of uh, Syria, where hospitals are being bombed in places like Aleppo by Russia and uh, with uh, the assistance of the Iranians. So too, we find that the Saudis are committing a rather brutal uh, attack uh, within Yemen with hospitals, schools, and the like also being attacked. Uh, one uh, recent development is the former uh, president of uh, Yemen, Ali Abdullah Saleh, has in fact indicated that he wouldn't mind Russia coming in on the side of the Houthi rebels who are being uh, supplied by Iran. Yeah. So we find that many, many moving parts are underway in uh, in the Middle East. Yeah, uh, Aaron, what is it that uh, what is it that the Russians ultimately want? here uh, and I mean that in a in a semi sort of global sense because I think the, their behavior in Syria is not just about Syria it is about it's about Russia and the way it sees itself and the way it wants to see itself uh, there are now I guess 40,000 Russian troops in the Ukraine for instance uh, a, a place that they are also flexing muscle what what is it what's uh, what does Vladimir Putin sort of see as the role for that country uh, going forward I mean you could argue that Russia doesn't really care what happens in Syria what it wants is a stable pro-russian regime there that's really it right uh, it's and it's willing to commit kind of human rights violations to get there uh, what does it want it wants um, a, a regime that's pro-Russian in Syria. It wants uh, increased presence in the Middle East. It wants to counter Western presence there as well. But as you said, kind of most importantly, it wants to use it as a negotiating, as a bargaining chip. Uh, one, to get Russia back into uh, kind of the global presence, especially to reduce uh, embargoes against it, economic embargoes, but also to increase its position in Ukraine. Uh, Russia has been moving forces into, especially into Crimea, uh, and strengthening forces in Western Russia. Um, so something is something is going on yeah. in Ukraine. Um, so uh, so clearly it's using it as, as a bargaining chip, um, bringing Turkey back into kind of uh, closer uh, closer relations with Russia is exactly what what it wants. Uh, Turkey and Russia have had um, differing ideas about the role uh, of Ukraine. Uh, Turkey has supported um, the Crimean Tatars in uh, in Crimea, uh, has been sympathetic to Ukraine. So that also uh, changes. So it really is um, less about Syria and more about Russia's kind of global presence. Yeah. Uh, is, it a, is it a correct read to say that Putin um, is nostalgic for Cold War Russia and the, and the influence that it wielded around the globe, or is, or is it more complicated than uh, that? It's more complicated. Um, I mean, I don't want to bore your listeners because there's a lot of kind of... <laughs> I was uh, say, uh, <laughs> there's, that's there's, too much in the weeds. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's, uh, it gets into domestic politics as well uh, yeah. in Russia because there are... Um, there are elections uh, for the Duma next next month, and so clearly this is part of this nationalist rhetoric yeah. uh, that Putin is really kind of the, the the late Putin era is focusing on Russian nationalism. I wouldn't really call it kind of Soviet kind of Sovietology, yeah. uh, but it's really kind of this ultra nationalism, and you need to have you need to have this mobilized nationalism to keep Putin popular and keep. Um, 
the allies of, of Putin uh, popular. He's also just uh, this last month did um, fired a lot of his closest allies, brought in new people. So there's this real domestic change going on. And Russia being strong in Syria without it being a quagmire really helps Putin's position. Yeah. Uh, this is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. My guests are Saeed Khan, who is a lecturer in Near East and Asian Studies at Wayne State University and a fellow at the Institute for Social Policy and Understanding. I also have Aaron Reddish here. Uh, he's a history professor at Wayne State University with a specialization in Soviet and Russian history, also an author. We are talking about Syria and Russia, uh, the Middle East generally, the U.S. role in the Middle East, uh, the attention uh, that the conflict in Syria is getting in, in Western nations like the U.S. now because of uh, images like those of the Syrian boy who was covered in uh, dust and blood in the back of an ambulance. Uh, if you want to give us a call, give uh, join the conversation, talk about what you think uh, the United States ought to be doing about the things that are happening in the Middle East, what we maybe shouldn't be doing. Uh, 313-577-1019 is the number. 313-577-1019. I want to talk about Biden's uh, trip to Turkey and the request that is coming from uh, Turkey for extradition uh, from this country. Biden's going uh, sort of to follow up on the coup attempt, but we've also now got this new tension about uh, somebody that we uh, have here that they would like back there to do probably not very nice things to. Well, we're speaking about Fethullah Gülen, who is a, uh, a religious leader who is in uh, self-imposed exile in uh, in rural Pennsylvania. Uh, who has a movement called the Hizmet Movement, which is uh, based on social justice. Uh, interestingly, uh, Gülen and Erdogan were one-time allies. In fact, when Erdogan came to power uh, about 12 years ago, uh, Gülen uh, definitely supported uh, uh, Erdogan's efforts uh, to wrest power away from the old guard uh, Kemalist uh, ultra-secularists in the country. Uh, they've had a falling out. Uh, it doesn't seem as though it's really uh, ideological as much as it is egotistical. Uh, that uh, there really can't be two uh, big uh, chiefs uh, in the same room. And we find then that uh, over the last few years, uh, Erdogan has used uh, Gulen and his movement as a convenient foil uh, in order to consolidate power. And uh, certainly the coup that occurred a few uh, weeks ago uh, brought that to a head. Uh, the convenient uh, scapegoat for that was the Gulen movement as well as those people who were within uh, the, uh, the government. And so the purges that have occurred since in, very, in pretty much every sector of Turkish society, the military, the judiciary, judiciary, the education system, all seems to point to an agenda that Erdogan has to uh, bring more and more power to himself. He yeah. used to be the prime minister, moved over to the presidency, and is now switching the entire constitutional uh, uh, landscape of Turkey in order to give that office more power in a similar fashion to what has happened with Putin's with Russia. Putin and Russia, yeah. Um, we're going to take a quick break here. Uh, when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation about the complicated relationship between Syria and Russia and in the Middle East. Uh, stay with us on the phones, too. Neil in Detroit, Harold in Midtown. We will get to you. And if you want to join the conversation again, the number is 313-577-1019. Stay with us on Detroit Today. News. Stories that impact your lives. 
culture. And the music you love. With a little Motor City flavor. I'm 1019 WDET. You're listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and thanks for tuning in. My guests are Saeed Khan, who's a lecturer in Near East and Asian Studies at Wayne State University and a fellow at the Institute for Social Policy and Understanding. Also in studio is Aaron Reddish, history professor at Wayne State University with a specialization in Soviet and Russian history, uh, also an author. We're talking about Syria and Russia, the Middle East in general, uh, the things and the tensions that are going on there. What does that mean to those of us here in the United States? Uh, it's, it's a very complicated situation uh, that's not familiar to an awful lot of Americans. Of course, our attention uh, gets riveted when we see pictures uh, like we did recently of uh, the Syrian boy who was in the back of an ambulance uh, dusting himself off uh, bloodied uh, by by bombs uh, but but how much attention should we be paying how much attention should Americans be paying to what goes on in the Middle East and what should we be thinking about doing in the region to make things more stable 313-577-1019 is the number to join the conversation that's 313-577-1019 let's go to Neil in Detroit Neil welcome to Detroit today Thank you so much. Sure. I just love this show. Oh, good. Being on. <laughs> uh, I have sort of a two-part question. Um, I'm always perking up when I uh, hear a show with guests like yours because I'm always curious about what Russia's interest uh, might be, not just in the dealing with the Middle East, but to me the whole conflict in Syria, the destabilization of Europe. And I wonder what your guests would think about that. And by and that, then, by that, do you mean uh, the 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 refugee issue? In other words, sending yes. uh, people out of Syria into Europe. Yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah, and, and you had another it's question. That, and it's also the amount of money and the um, the distraction that all the European countries have to uh, deal with, taking away from their own economies and interests, and having to deal with something that really is beyond their. Control. Right, right. Um, and then the second portion is why this is never discussed on on how this conflict destabilizes Europe. Yeah. So, okay. Uh, Neil, thanks very much uh, for the call. Uh, Aaron Reddish, Saeed Khan, I'll, I'll let you guys uh, address his, uh, his questions. I mean, certainly there's been a massive uh, human casualty from the conflict in Syria as well as conflicts elsewhere in the Middle East and, and Central Asia. Um, this has not been, as far as I know, kind of a conscious attempt to destabilize Russia, uh, uh, destabilize Europe from Russia. That is to send kind of a human wave of, of refugees in, into Europe. Um, I think that goes into, uh, I mean, well beyond something that, that Russia could do. There's actually a kind of this interesting counter uh, narrative in Russia that, in fact, the Russians and not the West Europeans are the uh, ones who are caring for the refugees. Um, that's not really supported in fact, but it's a really kind of interesting um, counter narrative in the, in the Russian media. Uh, they have allowed some refugees to go through uh, Russia into, uh, into Northern Europe. Um, but I mean, that said, whether conscious or not, I mean, there has been this, uh, I mean, the Syria has 
the reverberations have affected Europe in, yeah. in massive fashion. Yeah. Well, and <clears throat> I'm also really interested in the effect uh, the effect that it seems to be having on Turkey, which, uh, of course, is is uh, an important player in this tension between uh, the, the 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 West and and Russia. The destabilization in Syria seems to be making things worse for the West in Turkey. Is that, well, a, is that a correct read? I think so. I mean, when you find that uh, President Erdogan was negotiating with Europe, saying that we will take back some of uh, your refugees and then give you, quote unquote, good refugees, essentially ones <laughs> who are vetted in, in a very bizarre kind of uh, a, a shell game that, uh, that was being played. The fact that that and uh, some uh, aid that he was hoping to uh, elicit from uh, 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 Europe didn't come through, uh, I think pushed him over toward the Putin side of the ledger. Uh, he has become uh, increasingly uh, dis, uh, discontented with uh, the Western countries. And remember, this is important because NATO is, uh, or Turkey is still a NATO it's ally a NATO and, a, and a frontline one. But I would say that in the case of uh, uh, Europe, Neil, uh, the refugee crisis is simply uh, the latest shiny object uh, for Europe to now uh, focus on. Uh, when we take a look at some of the uh, bubbling tensions in Europe over the last several years, uh, a wobbly uh, euro uh, zone currency, uh, a semi-dormant xenophobia that has always pervaded within the country, and then, of course, over the summer, uh, the Brexit, uh, where uh, the British, uh, in a really ill-fated referendum by uh, former Prime Minister Cameron, uh, put it up to a vote whether they wanted to leave the European Union, and it seemed as though that really backfired among the elites in uh, Britain yeah. who never ventured outside uh, the M25 uh, <laughs> circular highway of London to realize that there was a tremendous uh, uh, pushback. And interestingly enough, not over Syrian refugees, but Polish and other Eastern immigrant uh, um, uh, workers uh, within the country who saw that all of these people from sort of the new uh, member states of the EU were flooding into uh, Great Britain. Britain and were taking jobs away from locals without any kind of reciprocity. So what's happening in Europe uh, and these tensions has simply been exacerbated by the uh, the Syrian refugee situation, but there's not, I would say, a de uh, direct correlation it's to its destabilization. Purpose, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's go to Casey and Warren. Casey, welcome hey. to Detroit today. Yeah. Good morning, guys. Uh -huh. Hey. Uh, you know, this entire problem, uh, you know, ostensibly comes from bad boundaries, and borders that were set up that didn't take into uh, consideration religious factions and tribal fighting. Um, I'm thinking now that what we were dealing with recently is obviously the vacuum, the power vacuum with Saddam not being there. Um, maybe it's time just to carve up Iraq into just regions where there's a Kurdish state in the north, and that is our military sphere of influence to the United States, but whether it means ceding Syria to Turkey or Syria to Iran and Russia, but also Iraq, the rest of Iraq, you can give a little bit to uh, Saudi Arabia to appease them, but <laughs> if you've got Sunni and Shiite states and the people who have that religion know they have a safe place to, you know, uh, propagate that religion at least you have boundaries now set with religious and tribal uh, sets that people know where to go. Right. And you just, you, you just basically break up Iraq because obviously the borders that it was set up 
pretty plus Mesopotamia haven't worked. Yeah. So that area just needs to be broken up into you know areas of influence by the big boys. Yeah, and uh, not the little ones. KC, thanks very much. Uh, really interesting. Uh, set of ideas there. I, I, I would extend his his analysis to not just to, I mean to Iraq. I mean this is part of the problem in Syria as well, right? The uh, the 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 factionalism uh, that that exists in these countries. Now, of course, I think uh, our policy uh, from the U.S. standpoint has has exacerbated that <laughs> more often. Uh, the not Iraq is is a perfect example of it. Well, Casey is very astute because uh, this marks the hundredth year anniversary of uh, the Sykes-Picot Treaty, mm-hmm. uh, which was between the British and the French and ostensibly the Russians, uh, in which the uh, the Middle East, as we understand it, was carved up uh, in advance of uh, the end of World War One. And uh, Iraq is essentially nothing more than three. Uh, provinces of the former Ottoman Empire fused together. And what Casey is doing is echoing what uh, uh, Vice President Biden had in fact suggested at one point that these three states uh, and provinces should revert back and there should be a loose confederation. Uh, One of the problems that we're also finding, and this again goes to the complexity and uh, the frustration dealing with the, uh, the impasse for the United States, is that the U.S. has never been very good at statecraft in the Middle East. Uh, We, in fact, inherited the role from the British and the French uh, when they uh, started to uh, pull out about 70 years ago. And then there have also been these competing interests between sovereign and corporate uh, priorities uh, in the region. Uh, That doesn't really bode well either for American policy and perhaps more importantly for the people on the ground there. Yeah. Uh, Harold in Midtown. Welcome to Detroit Today, Harold. Oh, thanks for taking my call. Sure. I was in the military from 1982 to 2004, and uh, technically I was a Cold War soldier. Putin is basically, he's old school Russian, wants <laughs> to show his strength, try to bait you to do something, to react to him. And as far as in the Middle East, I don't know what the answer is. I think it has to be a, uh, political. So basically yeah. that's all I have to say. Thank yeah, you. no, thanks very much for the call, Harold. Aaron, Aaron Reddish, uh, he's sort of picking up on the theme I mentioned earlier, that, that there, are, there are aspects of Putin's personality and behavior that certainly would remind us of uh, Cold War uh, Cold War kinds of, of politics. Sure, uh, and uh, Putin was KGB um, sure. and really kind of honed his idea of the state in uh, in East Germany, uh, where he was stationed as, a, as part of the spy network. Um, and so that's, and he, he does play off, Putin does play off kind of these Cold War themes of Russian, that's the Soviet greatness. Uh, and Syria is, Russia's kind of involvement in Syria comes from the Cold War. Um, I would like to say that Putin was really shaped more by uh, the 1990s uh, after the Soviet Union fell and when Russia kind of imploded and lost all of its global power. And now Putin has been trying to rebuild this. So it's not just we if we just talk about Putin as KGB or as a renewal of this of the Cold War, we're missing a lot of the nuance. We're missing that the Rush that this is kind of uh, nationalism, not kind of this internationalism from the Soviet Union. Uh, we're missing kind of the the economic uh, aspect from the 1990s when the Russian economy imploded. So I mean, yes, we should see. 
Uh, we should see kind of the, these echoes of the Soviet Union, but it also is so much, much more. Can I also go back sure. to something that uh, Saeed was talking about with the last caller? The other thing that, that we need to remember, I think, with the Syrian conflict is that this comes from the Arab Spring, yes. which was this democratic movement and that the United States kind of supported. Yeah, we didn't uh, seem to know what to make of uh, all of that or, or, or who to support, uh, right. you know, uh, in these democratic movements. Yeah. But in many ways, they got superseded by our Gulf state allies uh, who would not countenance democratization. And I think that's where yeah. you see then the split in, uh, in interests and strategies between the Gulf states that are operating in Syria and the United States. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's take one more call here. Uh, Mary Jo in Pleasant Ridge. Uh, uh, hi, thank yeah. you for having me. Welcome I wasn't able to hear the professor's comments uh, to the caller that talked about splitting up Syria, but the Syrian people have a Syrian identity. I know that our elected officials, um, President, um, Vice President Biden, you know, has talked about this strategy in Iraq, uh, but, and I don't want to comment on Iraq. I don't know Iraq as well as I do know Syria. I'm married to a Syrian. But the Syrian people, regardless of their religious orientation, they have very much they a, have a national identity. In yes, the they do. Right. And I want to also challenge, want to push back a little bit on these faulty comparisons. I haven't heard the professors talk about it per se. I, I do kind of cringe when people talk about the complexity, because it's really not all that hard in terms of thinking about this is not a fair comparison to Iraq. The Syrian people rose up against a brutal dictator. They rose up. Right. You know, it wasn't an invasion. And it was a really bad time for the U.S. to kind of be pulling out, and uh, not only of the Middle East, but kind of, you know, uh, pulling out uh, in Southeast Asia and other places, and then making those comparisons to Iraq or Afghanistan. They're not yeah. fair comparisons to make. Yeah. So, and regardless of what we do, we have to do something on the humanitarian front. We absolutely have to put more pressure. This is the worst crisis since World War II. Half of the Syrian people are displaced. 80% of the country is in poverty, 50% in abject poverty. Um, I mean, it's just, you know, we're talking about a lost generation of Syrian kids. Yeah, yeah. We absolutely have to do something and, on the humanitarian front. And, and Mary Jo, <clears throat> I think you mentioned that you're married to someone of, of Syrian descent. I think uh, here in Metro Detroit, with the, the strong sort of cultural ties uh, in this community to that region, the, the point you just made has has added added significance and 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 poignance. So uh, oh, absolutely, we're starting to you know see a new influx of Syrian refugees here, yeah. and the community again, regardless of their religious background, you know, has come together in different ways to support grassroots organizations. There's the Syrian American Rescue Network, SARNs, that's helping. So. But I think we have to challenge some of this. Even going back to was this really a civil war? Certainly, there's a lot of sectarian divide because sure. the government's very, very good about dividing people to stay in power. But we called it a civil war very early on. We didn't call it a revolution or an uprising. Right. And there's two things the Syrian people on the ground in Syria, no one calls it a civil war. The people who are against the regime call it a revolution. 
and the people who are with the regime or the regime says we're fighting terrorists, but nobody calls it a civil war there. So mm. when Americans hear civil war in the Middle East, they kind of put their hands up and say there's nothing <laughs> there's we nothing can we do. can do. That's a it's really too great complex, point. And we need to deconstruct it and unpack it. It's not that complex. Yeah. Uh, Mary Jo, thanks very much uh, for your call and, and, and for your thoughts. Uh, Saeed Khan, lecturer in Near East and Asian Studies at Wayne State University, fellow at the Institute for Social Policy and Understanding, Aaron Reddish, history professor at Wayne State University with a specialization in Soviet and Russian history and an author. Thank you guys, as always, for being here. Thank you. We're going to have to have a uh, uh, name for these segments, like Two Smart Guys or something. (laughs) (laughs) It was excellent. Uh, All right, coming up next, uh, we're going to talk about how charter schools are tackling their responsibility to educate special needs students. You're going to want to stick around for that segment. Uh, Stay with us on Detroit Today.